What are the major factors that led to Cook County's vacant properties challenge? How can the county adapt its residential infrastructure and market to fit with current demographic trends? And what role will the Cook County Land Bank play in addressing these issues? From the Chicago Policy Review and the University of Chicago, this is Chicago Policy Radio. I'm your host, Julie Cooper. Today I'm speaking with Cook County Commissioner Bridget Gaynor, who has represented the county's 10th district since 2009. Commissioner Gaynor is the chair of the County Board's Committee on Pensions, as well as serving on a number of other committees. Her priorities as commissioner include promoting the accessibility of financial services, preserving quality health services for vulnerable and high-risk communities, making government operations more efficient and transparent, and most recently, addressing the challenges posed by the county's thousands of vacant properties. In addition to her current position, Commissioner Gaynor works in the private sector as an insurance broker for Aon. She's also previously worked in the public sector for the City of Chicago's Budget Department and Parks District, and in the nonprofit sector as a community organizer in New York City and Chicago. Commissioner Gaynor has a BA from the University of Illinois and an MBA from the University of Chicago. Commissioner Gaynor, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Uh, While you've had a really varied and interesting career, I'd like to focus today on one of your most recent projects, the Cook County Land Bank. In case our listeners don't know, Cook County is facing a vacant properties challenge similar to that being faced by cities such as Detroit and Cleveland. The county has about 55,000 vacant properties with another 85,000 going through the foreclosure process. Can you give us a brief overview of the scope of the county's vacant properties problem and the consequences of having so many vacant properties in the region? I can. So I think when we talk about vacant properties in Cook County, it's important to remember that vacancy and foreclosure is really a problem that goes throughout the county. It may be more intense in certain areas, but it's not just limited to low-income communities. And I think one of the things that I have kind of come to believe and discover after a couple of years of really being in the weeds on this issue of vacant housing is that while we had the financial crisis in 2008 and that exacerbated a problem, we were getting there um, as far as the supply and demand of housing and what that did to increase the number of vacant homes over the past couple of decades. So if we just step back for a second and look at our general housing economy, So the city of Chicago especially, and some of the older suburbs, have what's known as the grid structure. You know, linear streets, density in certain communities, you know, multi-unit buildings, some more single family. And that architecture, especially in the denser inner neighborhoods, was really set up to handle two big trends, demographic trends. One was constant waves of immigration, and the second was kind of large family size and early household formation. And that worked, you know, there was constantly new floods of people flooding into neighborhoods like Little Village and Lawndale and, and Southside and Grand Crossing. And, and those are things that we see less of today. And so one of the things that I think is important to consider is while we had this financial crisis and people got into bad mortgages and so they walked away from their mortgages and they left homes empty, we were also seeing over the last 20 years um, 
a shift out to the suburbs or the fact that people don't want to live in such dense community, especially, you know, outside of high rises. And so you were seeing demographic trends. You didn't see big waves of immigration. You saw people forming households much later. You saw them having fewer children. And so all of those things lead to less dense communities. Um, and those aren't signs of community failure. They're signs of evolution of how we live. And I think that's important to think about because if we only can see it as, oh no, there's fewer people here, that's gotta mean something bad, what are we gonna do about it? It means that we can't really solve the problem because we're not changing the way people live. We need to adapt our architecture to the way people live instead of trying to do the reverse. Um, so when we look at the county's vacant building problem or vacant building issue, it's, there's kind of an inner city issue and then there's suburban issues. Um, in the suburbs, especially <clears throat> in the south suburbs, you have a really high tax base because you have a lot of communities that have very little commercial, little industrial, and so the entire tax base is supported by housing. And so it tends to be pretty high. The property taxes, rather, tend to be pretty high. So you get into a situation where people may be able to afford the home, but then the property taxes are higher. And so you have other pressures economically. So you have, you know, reallocating supply and demand, you have prop pressures of property tax, and then you have places where there was rapid turnover to new homeowners. Um, certain communities where you saw a lot of people who were buying a home for the first time, who might have been in hospitality or construction, where neighborhoods really turned over from, say, older um, European populations to a Latino population. And so then when the housing, um, when the financial crisis hit and you had certain parts of the economy, for example, hospitality, tourism, um, construction, hit more hard, you saw this kind of crash that we see. But the thing that I like to stress is this isn't just a poor community problem. This isn't just a low-income you know, people's problem. This is something that's a regional issue. So in the same way that we think regionally about transportation or about water, we need to think regionally about what does our housing market look like and how do we make it as healthy as we can. And in what ways is Cook County's situation with vacant properties unique from uh, what other cities, uh, particularly in the Midwest, are facing? That's a great question. Um, I get asked a lot about you know, the economy is getting better, how come we have so many vacant houses still? And, because they'll say like, you know, you look at places like Cleveland, they're really, you know, they have less percentage of vacant homes now. And when you look at Cleveland and Detroit, they entered the financial crisis in a much weaker position than we did. And the amount of demolition that has gone on, especially in Cleveland, is very different from the amount of demolition we'll ever see in Cook County. So we had communities that were, you know, some communities that were very weak, some communities that were, were you know, on, in the fence, um, go into the financial crisis and definitely take a blow. But you didn't have to move immediately to demolition because it's not as if you had communities where there were, you know, decades of vacant housing. You know, certain ones we did, but they were, they were relatively few. But when you look at some of the communities that are suffering with vacant land and foreclosure now, they were not, you know, they were pretty stable before the financial crisis. That exacerbated some of the issues. But we have options. We don't have to move into large-scale demolition. So the triage process that we can go through, could this be a rental? You know, is there not a market for this home to be sold, but maybe not right now, but maybe it will be in five years. So there's, there's kind of a cycle of trying to determine what are really the options? Where are we settling down? What is a reaction to the financial crisis from a credit crunch perspective, people not be able to get housing, to the fact that, you know what, 
a lot of people, maybe from a demographic perspective, they don't want to buy. They don't want to enter into a 30-year mortgage. They want to rent. That is actually preferable to them. So how do we, again, instead of trying to change the way we live to fit the architecture, how do we change the market to fit the way we live? So if people are having a greater desire for a single-family rental, how do we help create that market? I mean, there's a great, there's a huge market for single-family rentals in the suburbs because large banks have come in, Blackstone, Waypoint, Invitation Homes. They've come across the country and created single-family home rental opportunities. Those really kind of stop at the city, even the inner suburbs. It's, you know, from, if you looked at Fox River Valley down to Joliet, that suburban spread is very, there's tons of single-family home rental opportunities. Once you get into the city, they don't really exist. Maybe from the guy who owns a house and does a one-off, but they're not in this kind of larger system where you could do rent lease to own and they have credit options and all that stuff. So, um, you know, we need to figure out a way and where I hope the land bank can be of value is how do we start to first start to have the conversation and then secondly then try to invite developers, market people in the market to you know, meet this new demand that we have. So getting in more specifically into the land bank, how can the land bank address the vacant properties challenge? What are the tools that you use to, to address this problem? So th there's kind of two big areas um, that exacerbate the vacant building problem. One are what I call kind of like the man-made issues, getting title, clearing that title from liens, um, assembling scale to do, for example, like a single family home rental program. And then there are the macroeconomic issues like, you know, jobs and, you know, crime and schools quality. So putting those issues aside and knowing the land bank can't really address things like that, but there still are pressures. The land bank's whole focus is how do we address the things in which that we consider solvable problems? So right now, and one of the reasons we really started this process in the first place is, you know, it takes about 600 days to clear a title in court for a house that's going through foreclosure. And so, and that is far greater than it historically was. So historically in Cook County, we had about 15,000 15, foreclosures filed in any given year, and we had about 15,000 pending at any given time. So you could see that things were kind of churning in and out. Well, then we had a couple of years where we had 50,000 filings and 60,000 filings, and we never changed the number of judges who were hearing foreclosure cases. And so now what you have are 80,000 cases pending, okay, so multiples of what we used to have. And it's like a throughput problem. The pipe is only so big, and so what it does is it stretches out the time. So if you live on a block and somebody walks away and says, look, I can't afford this mortgage anymore, I'm out of here, it's going to take that bank sometimes up to two years to gain title to do something with that house, which means you're creating kind of another victim, not only the person that couldn't afford their house, but the guy who lives next door who's now living next to a vacant property for which technically kind of no one is responsible. I mean, technically the homeowner is responsible, but they've left. The bank is not responsible until they have title. So not being able to get title, it actually creates a real problem. Um, you know, when we first started looking at this process, it was that exact issue that really drove us down this road because um, we, you know, we got together with the city and the banks and created a vacant building ordinance that said, look, if you issue someone a mortgage and they are now gone and you are getting title, you have to at least cut the grass and secure the building so this property doesn't become a menace. Um, so that really created a strong relationship with the banks and with the city because we're all in this together. So when we look at the land bank, it's how do we work together with the court system 
to get what was called kind of quiet bulk title. We're actually down in Springfield now with a piece of legislation sponsored by Kwame Raoul um, and Kelly Burke to try to allow the land bank to go and say, okay, here's 50 buildings. They've all been abandoned. They, the bank doesn't want them anymore. Let's go to get this, they call it quiet title, which is an accelerated process. So it's not sitting out there for two years. We can actually turn this around and move faster. The second big obstacle is when there are existing liens, water liens, water bills, sewer bills, back taxes, things that make a property not able to just take ownership of. So say you get the title and, the, and whatever city or suburb that the building resides in says, okay, well now you owe us $25,000 on this water bill that somebody else didn't pay for the last decade. And you know you have a lot of developers who told us directly, say, look, I'm not unwilling to develop in a low-income community. I've been in these neighborhoods my whole life. But I can't wait two years, can't tie up my equity for two years trying to get title, and then I can't be surprised at the end with an additional $10,000 cost. So one of our goals is to, to work out intergovernmental agreements with these cities and suburbs to say, look, if somebody has a plan for development, can we work together to accelerate the release of the lien? And we've gotten a lot of great response on that. So those are the ways in which we think the land bank can facilitate. And then thinking a little more long-term, what role, if any, do you think the land bank can play in shaping trends in the county's economic and community development? That's a great question. And it gets back to this conversation I have about demographics. Because I do think we need to, we need to help people think differently about um, how our city is evolving. And to think that, you know, just because the city doesn't look like it did in 1960 doesn't mean that, oh God, it's failing and we have to return to that. I mean, something I have pointed out before is the, you know, if you look at Englewood in 1950, its population, it's lost 60% of its population since then. Okay, so from 1950 to 2010, lost 60% of its population. But Lincoln Park has lost 40% of its population. And nobody says, well, how, how's Lincoln Park going to survive into the next decade? Well, you have two examples of a place where we live differently now. In, in Englewood, it's driven by the fact that you don't have waves of immigration. I mean, that was, a, that was a definitely gateway community where people came and you don't have large family size anymore as much. And then you look at Lincoln Park and you think, okay, that also was a gateway community for immigrants, but, but it morphed and changed. And so now that you have people wanting to live maybe less densely, they, instead of doing, living in a three flat, they make it a single family home, take a side yard. When you have a really robust market, it smooths out those demographic changes. And when you don't have a, a strong market, those demographic changes become really bumpy. Um, and so I think that what we want to say to people is success isn't just going back to the past. So if you could kind of unburden yourself from saying, well, we have to return to density as it always was, that's how a city is thriving, it's just going to look differently. Um, you know, the example I give from my personal life is, you know, my mother grew up in Englewood. She was one of 10 children. She lived on a block with all a ton of immigrant families. I'm one of six kids and I have three children. And, you know, that is a not uncommon spread. And what we want to focus on is how do people want to live now? And how do we make our housing market and our architecture fit to that? Are there other cities um, who are running land banks or dealing with vacant properties that you really um, look to uh, for guidance and to help with uh, developing the Cook County land bank? I think that 
in Cook County will be is, if you imagine there's a spectrum of landing. So you have places like Cleveland and Detroit where a lot of demolition, I mean, enormous amounts of demolition. And then you have places like Twin Cities, very strategic, very little demolition, and a lot of um, strategic focus on, for example, maintaining affordable housing around transit corridors. That's their guiding principle. So, you know, Cook County, I think, will be somewhere in between those two. So we've looked at um, Twin Cities and Cleveland really as the two lodestars. They are different. They address different issues. But we have aspects of their economy in here in Cook County. So we, I find this, this strategic focus of low-income housing and affordable housing around transit corridors really interesting because they're highly desirable, but how do you make sure you maintain a diverse community around desirable real estate? That's fantastic. And it also comports with a lot of the transit-oriented development that Chicago's focused on for decades. Um, it's just a different thread. And how does the land bank play a role in that? On the Cleveland side, they've been incredibly innovative on how they worked with Treasury and the banks and others around getting title to troubled properties. In, if, if they need to be demolished, doing so, working together with like the EPA and other federal agencies to create open spaces or to kind of move on to that next step for them. Um, so we've taken lessons from both of those. And then finally, some people argue that the ultimate sign of success for a land, land bank is when it becomes obsolete, basically when all the vacant properties it's been holding have been remediated and sold. Is that what your ultimate goal is for the land bank? And if not, what would you say the ultimate goal is? Look, if we ended up not needing the land bank, I would be thrilled. I don't, you know, the land bank kind of morphed out of really hundreds of conversations, you know. It started because people started calling the office going through foreclosure. So we set up a legal aid clinic at the court just to help people who walked in never having been in court before. Then we moved to the vacant building ordinance and started to address that issue and it was kind of like pulling thread out of a sweater. The only reason we even started thinking about a land bank is because we realized we were in this mode of punish the banks, create fines, you know, but we were never in the pro-growth mode of kind of growing the pie. And so then we started looking around the country for examples of what people did when they were in this situation and we found the land bank and it created. And it created in this space that the housing market wasn't really working. Um, you know, one of the things I'll say about the banks is I think they found themselves in this situation, especially the people on the ground, somewhat by surprise. But you know, they had, they had an interest, an economic interest in all this housing that was being abandoned or being foreclosed upon. And when you look at one actor in the economy, so you've got the government, you have the community, you have the, the asset holder, which would be the bank, and these, these properties were kind of let to sit there, basically unprotected for years as they were winding through a foreclosure process that a lot of people will assert the banks weren't even aggressively going after. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, but there was often, there was marketable slowness to get title because then you have to pay taxes and do the maintenance. But when you have one part of kind of one of those legs of that table who's not acting in a rational way, well, the other two can't make up for it. So the land bank is really in the space of, we have this moment now where we have way more vacant housing than we've ever had. We have to figure out how to get to the other side of it. And I think the other side of it has a lot to do with our changing kind of demographic trends in cities. Um, and I think the land bank can be a catalyst for that. But at the end of it, I would love it if it was no longer necessary. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Chicago Policy Radio, a production of the Chicago Policy Review and the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago.
Our podcast was produced and edited by Julie Cooper. Special thanks this week to Amy Ellenson. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ryan Gee. You can find us at www.chicagopolicyreview.org. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.